Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome, Tim Decker here. Financial freedom on this beautiful fall day. Thank you for making us part of your Saturday afternoon. We have a very special show for you, and um, we're going to actually have a guest. Uh, Jonathan Clements is going to be coming up uh, right after our first break here, and uh, we're going to be discussing with Jonathan his brand new book entitled how to think about money. And in my opinion, I think that it's probably the best book that he has written. So uh, you're definitely going to want to stay tuned. And uh, we're going to discuss with Jonathan how he came about to write this book and some of the very interesting concepts and insights uh, that are in this book. So we're going to bring Jonathan up right after our first break here. Before we go to our first break, however, I just wanted to share just a couple quick thoughts with you. According to Barron's Magazine this morning, investor sentiment as measured by the American Association of Individual Investors continues to remain substantially non-bullish. In fact, in this week's magazine, they are showing that only 23.7% of you as individual investors out there are optimistic in the short term as it pertains to the U.S. stock market. And I just want to again remind you that when it comes to major stock market bubbles that we've had in the past, almost without exception, those begin during times not when individuals are extremely cautious, but actually the exact opposite. They most often happen when you as individual investors are extremely, extremely optimistic. And ultimately, that optimism numerous times turns into actually euphoria. So I just wanted to share that with you, and that ties right into the next thought that I wanted to uh, briefly discuss with you before we go to our first break. And that has to do with one of the reasons why I personally think that many of you are extremely and remain extremely cautious on the outlook of the U.S. stock market, again, as measured by the American Association of Individual Investors survey, is I believe a lot of it has to do with you are concerned about what is going on November 8th. I think many of you are still allowing the concerns or the uncertainty of what may take place in this election to have an impact on how you are investing. And just this past week when I was uh, 
a guest speaker at the York Sertoma, the York Sertoma Club. After I was done speaking, one of the uh, attendees there specifically asked me. He said, you know, I understand what you have presented here from a historical perspective as to what has taken place over the many, many years in the markets relative to the elections. And I understand that your point of emphasis is when you look at history and you look at the evidence that allowing one's politics or allowing who we believe is going to be in the office to in any way have an impact on how you invest would have always been a very, very big mistake. But then he went on to say, but we've really never had an election like this. And my simple response was, you are absolutely right. This is a very, very unique election. But then I went on to remind him and everyone else, and I want to remind all of you, regardless of what's going on in politics, regardless of what takes place between now and November 8th, all of the concerns that you have, all of the disappointments that you may have, all of the concerns and disappointments that I may have, all of that information... And all of those concerns that many of us have, that information is known. And because it is known by its very nature, investors throughout the world also are fully aware of this. And that information is reflected in prices as we speak. And the key point to remember is market prices incorporate and reflect known information. It's only the unexpected, the unknown, that can real abruptly have an impact on how markets adjust. And the reason for it is very, very simple. Because that information was not known prior, thus it was not reflected in prices, once new information comes out, the market throughout the world do a fabulous, fabulous job of immediately pricing that information in. So in summary, I want to urge you and I want to remind you that if indeed you do have a well thought out, sound financial plan that you have developed based upon your own goals, objectives, risk tolerance, etc., and then you have implemented and built a beautiful, globally diversified portfolio owning great companies throughout the world, I urge you, do not allow your politics, do not allow what's taking place in the world of politics between now and November 8th to tempt you to want to make any changes. Okay, we're going to go to our first break. When we come back, we're going to bring up our very special guest, Mr. Jonathan Clements, and we're going to be discussing his excellent, excellent new book entitled How to Think About Money. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. Tim Decker here with you. Again, let me let me give you a big thank you uh, for making us part of your Saturday afternoon. And it actually does feel like a fall day after we had a few days this uh, past week where we were actually in the 80s. So it looks like fall is here. I want to welcome our special guest, Mr. Jonathan Clements, a good friend, colleague of mine who I've known for numerous years and uh, actually was our guest speaker at our annual client event that we have in Hershey each year. Jonathan is a renowned author and financial columnist. Uh, he has written, has written several books and uh, also uh, was a columnist for the Wall Street Journal for almost 20 years as well as uh, writing in Forbes. Uh, one of his most recent books uh, that has been coming out annually now is the Jonathan Clements Money Guide. And uh, I know the 2016 book is out, and soon uh, I presume we're going to have the 2017 book. But the book that we're going to be talking about with Jonathan today is, I must say, is probably one of my favorite books that Jonathan has written. The title of the, his newest book is How to Think About Money. Jonathan, I welcome you, and thanks for taking part of your Saturday to join us. Tim, it's great to be with you as always. Uh, you, of course, have had a preview of, uh, of the book back right. in August of 2015 when I spoke to that great uh, client conference that you had, and I talked about uh, the sort of the five pillars of this new book that I've written, How to Think About Money, and in the months after that, uh, that great conference, you know, I worked on the book, I thought more about the issues, and finally it all came together earlier this year, and the, the book is now available. Yes, yes. I, uh, I was very, very much looking forward to, after uh, you spoke at our client event, to uh, uh, actually get a copy of the book, as you had said it was going to be coming out. And I have very, very much enjoyed reading it. And share with us just a little bit about, you know, what's what's the background that led you to writing this book? As you know, it's quite unique, and uh, uh, it's 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 less and less about how to as it pertains to the specifics of. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Investing, and it has much more substantive insights as it pertains to us as individuals. So share with us a little bit about the background, what, you know, what cut your interest in this and what led to you you know, actually putting out this uh, excellent book. So, Tim, I've been writing and thinking about money for more than 30 years. That probably, probably says that I have a very shallow life, but the fact is I have been thinking about this topic for more than three decades. And when I started out back in the mid-1980s, you know, I was wholly brought into conventional wisdom, and conventional wisdom said that, you know, if you work hard, you can beat the market, that, you know, if you uh, 
have more money, you're going to be happier. And notions like that, you know, were sort of well-baked into my brain, and I went out into the financial world imagining that they were true. And since then, of course, you know, I've discovered all kinds of things that, you know, most people don't beat the market, that, you know, a life built around relaxation, which is supposedly the great goal, isn't a particularly happy life. Mm-hmm. The money doesn't necessarily buy happiness. We really need to think much harder about our financial life if we want to get the most out of it. You know, I, uh, I love the title or the name of your show, you know, Financial Freedom. I mean, to me, um, that is a core concept that everybody needs to grasp. So when I think about financial freedom, for me, financial freedom is about having enough money to lead the life that we want. It's not about being the richest family in the neighborhood. It's not about beating the market. It's not about proving to your brother-in-law how clever you are with your investments. Managing money is about having enough to lead the life that you want. And if you think about that notion, it really radically changes the way you approach money. You stop all this nonsense trying to beat the market, trading like crazy, making these big investment bets. And instead, you focus on having enough money to do the things that are really important to you. Right, right. Why, when you... When you look at the so-called conventional wisdom, as you talk about in your book here, why is it that you believe that so many of us just automatically assume that the conventional wisdom is accurate? Well, in many cases, you know, the conventional wisdom appeals to our innate instincts. Mm-hmm. The reality is we are the great-great-grandchildren of our hunter-gatherer ancestors, you know, we have within us the instincts that you know allowed them to survive and reproduce, and hence the reason that we're here today. And what were those instincts? Well, they were very loss of us. They, you know, they they feared uh, bad things happening because if that if they if bad things happen, it often would mean death. Right. They were overconfident. They they tended to believe that you know they were better than other people because that overconfidence was necessary in order to survive in the ancient world. Uh, they worked hard. They believed that if you worked hard, you know, that was the key to survival. And, and there's nothing wrong with working hard, except when it comes to the financial work markets. If you work too hard and you're investing, you tend to end up with worse results. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, they believed that more was better. They, um, and in a world where you didn't know that there was going to be food tomorrow, by all means, you know, you were going to consume whenever you had the opportunity. But if you take those instincts and you apply them to today, they can often lead people astray. This fear of losses can cause people to panic and sell when the market goes down. The overconfidence can lead people to trade too much. The belief in hard work can, again, lead us to trade too much and to try to beat the market. And the instinct to consume whenever we have the opportunity leads people to spend too much and save too little. Put it all together and you realize that we are hardwired for financial failure and that it takes great mental strength to save diligently and invest intelligently. Reams of statistics prove that most people are not very good at this, and yet the stakes are too high just to follow your instincts. Mm -hmm. You've either got to get your own financial house in order, or if you can't manage it, you need to find an ethical financial advisor to help you do so. Right, right. And I guess that's what you were referring to in your book when you 
talked about evolutionary psychology, which is something that really hasn't got as much attention as behavioral finance psychology. When you think about what has gone on in the academic world in recent decades, there have been a variety of really intriguing strands that come together when you think about money. There's been the study of uh, evolutionary psychology, these instincts that we got from our hunter-gatherer ancestors. Mm -hmm. There's been the study of so-called neuroeconomics, which looks at how the brain responds to different stimuli. You know, and for instance, one of the things that we find is if you offer people the chance at a big win, such as you might get with a lottery ticket, it causes people's brains to light up. They get so excited by the chance (laughs) of a big win. And similarly, if you offer the prospect of a large loss, the brain freaks out and we're terrified. Uh, There's behavioral finance that you mentioned, Tim. I mean, there's been a lot of study of the systematic mistakes that we make when managing money. We're very bad at figuring out probabilities. We tend to be way too short-term oriented. We're overconfident. We make all kinds of mistakes. And then the fourth strand, um, one of the strands that perhaps I find most intriguing is what's called happiness research, trying to figure out why it is that our level of happiness in the U.S. and in other countries around the world has not risen along with our standard of living. Yeah. um, Later on, we're going to get into actually some of the specifics that you talk about in uh, your book here. And some of them, um, people may be a little surprised and there's one that uh, you talk about that can be a little sensitive <laughs> as well. And uh, uh, that's something that we're definitely going to want to uh, uh, delve uh, into. But <clears throat> the, the one of the things that, that you really, really get to has to do with the concept of delayed gratification and how important the discipline of being able to save is. Can you just offer just a few thoughts on that, um, if you would? Yeah, absolutely, Tim. And I'm sure that you've seen this with your clients. Oh, yeah. Over the years, I've met thousands of everyday Americans who've accumulated seven-figure portfolios. Mm -hmm. These folks often are mediocre investors, Sometimes they had relatively modest salaries, but all of them shared one key attribute in common. They were extremely frugal, otherwise known as cheap. The people (laughs) who managed to amass serious amounts of money, the one attribute they have in common is they are great savers. If you are not a great saver, you're going to have a life of constant financial worry, worrying about how you're going to pay the bills, worrying what you're going to do about the credit card balance, worrying about how you're going to pay for retirement. One way or another, you need to establish good savings habits. You need to learn to delay gratification. And, And the reality is that delaying gratification, spending less and saving more, it may sound like punishment, like this is going to make for an unhappy life, but in fact... There's reams of research that shows that we do not get much happiness from the dollars that we spend, that if you don't buy that new pair of shoes or that new electronic toy, in all likelihood, 
you're not going to be any less happy. And moreover, to the extent that you ha- delay buying that item, say you don't buy it immediately and you you know, wait a little bit longer until you have a little bit more saved and you buy it six months down the road, if anything, that will boost your happiness because you have this long period of pleasurable anticipation. Looking ahead and thinking how fun it is to get that new Macintosh computer or how fun it is to go on vacation, and you may indeed find that the anticipation is actually better than when you actually get to enjoy your goal. Right, right, right. Okay, well, we're going to take our first break. When we come back, let's let's pick up, and I want to talk a little bit about uh, what I had mentioned just a minute ago. Uh, there is a certain uh, topic that you discuss in your book. Um, it can be, as I said, somewhat s- sensitive, and uh, I want to delve right into that, and it has t- to do with our children. Okay, let's go to our break. When we come back, we'll pick right back up with Mr. Jonathan Clements, and we're talking about his new book, How to Think About Money. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back. Financial freedom on, again, a beautiful, beautiful fall and extremely windy day here in central Pennsylvania. We have our special guest, Mr. Jonathan Clements, author of an excellent, excellent book entitled How to Think About Money. And picking back up where we left off before the break, I had mentioned that we were going to, as Jonathan refers to in his book, we're going to talk about a touchy topic. (laughs) And one of the things that came out in all of this research that you did, Jonathan, has to do with the topic of do children help or hurt happiness? Can you share with us what you discovered as it relates to that topic, please? So as I did, did in the book, Tim, I will start by mentioning that I have two kids and two stepkids. So I am fully bought into the notion of having kids. In fact, I probably overinvested in children at this <laughs> point. But the fact is that the research shows, and, and I find it surprising, but the research shows that children do not help happiness. Now, let me, let me un, unpackage that a little bit. If you look, if you ask people whether they're happy, and they are in a long-term relationship or they're married, they are much more likely to say they are happy than people who are single. Mm-hmm. But what happens if you add children to the mix? Does it help or hurt happiness? And the evidence suggests, the studies have found, that adding children to the mix does not help happiness. So getting, getting married, 
forming a long-term relationship, good for happiness. Having kids, not so much. But let me take it, sort of unpackage it a little bit further. So when you think about happiness, there are really two different ways to think about it. There's sort of day-to-day happiness. Mm-hmm. You know, are you, do you enjoy each day? And then there's happiness as defined by, you know, when you think about your life, do you feel that you've got a good life? Do you feel, would you describe it as happy or not when you reflect on your life? So take the first notion, day-to-day happiness. If you talk to people as they approach the point where they're going to have their first child, the prospective parents report higher and higher levels of reported happiness as they approach the birth of their first child. And then it looks like the stock market in 2008. (laughs) (laughs) The kids arrive and their reported level of happiness plummets. And anybody who's, who's had a newborn knows what it's like. Suddenly you go from having the life to yourself to being up in the middle of the night, you're exhausted, the baby keeps crying, you can't figure out why. That's pretty obvious. But what surprised me was that is the second definition of happiness. When I think back on my life, I believe it is richer because I've had children. I believe that they have enhanced my life. Um, I love to be surrounded by my family. I, one of the things I spend my money on freely is to bring my kids together for sure, sure. vacations, for special meals, and so on. I really feel that enhances my life. Yep. But the research says that is not the case, that even when people reflect on their life, that having children does not necessarily enhance it. So either I'm deluding myself, um, or maybe I'm really fortunate, or maybe the research is wrong. But the evidence today suggests that having kids does not help happiness. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was very interesting. Um, and you know, the, the going along with a concept that I'm going to ask you to talk about briefly that you also uh, discuss in here having to do with a U shape as it pertains to what you discovered as a, you know, relating to our age when we are happiest and how that kind of drops down to a, a U and then picks back up. As I was thinking about, you know, happiness and children, I wonder if that research uh, went further out to when our kids were actually older, and as a result of them, we got to enjoy our grandchildren. (laughs) Well, that's actually an an interesting question. Somebody brought this up to me just the other day, that they said that, you know, raising kids is tough, but having grandchildren is wonderful. Right. It's a... uh, there's a, a phrase that I love that the the reason the grandparents and grandchildren get on so well is because they have a common enemy. <laughs> <laughs> so you know the, the the kids are the kids are selfish and greedy, but the grandchildren they're cute. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah, the conflict is always going to be greatest between adjacent generations. Once you get an additional generation removed, um, things tend to be better if there isn't that same level of conflict. But let me pick up on the, the U-shape, which I think, again, is a, a really intriguing notion. Research across 30 countries has found this same finding, which is that happiness through life tends to be U-shaped. We start our adult lives in our early 20s extremely happy. Our happiness deteriorates through our 20s and our 30s. It hits bottom in our our 40s, and then from there, happiness tends to rebound 
And later life can be among the happiest times in people's lives until they start to get hit with those end-of-life health issues. So why is it that our happiness tends to be lowest during our our 40s? Now, it could be the stress of life. You know, when when you're in your 40s, you might be at the height of your career. Mm -hmm. You're raising children. You might be dealing with elderly parents. It's a super stressful time, and that could be the reason why our happiness is – is at its lowest. Or, and there's an alternative explanation, which actually rings true to me, which is we get into the adult world in our 20s, we get out of high school, we get out of college, and we believe that we're going to go out and we're going to make a mark on the world. You know, We're going to be CEO, we're going to get promotions, we're going to get pay raises, we're going to buy houses and cars, and all of this is going to make us super happy. Well, what we discover through our 20s and 30s is, you know, we're not quite as smart and clever and successful as we imagined we would be. Right. We buy the houses and the cars, and, you know, they didn't really enhance our lives that much. We reach our 40s, and we have this sense of dissatisfaction that our life has not been what we expected. And at that point, the classic midlife crisis, we look at our lives and say, well, you know, what is it that does make me happy? And we start to realize that certain things are important to us and things are less important. And we start to focus our lives on those things that we find most enjoyable and give us a greater sense of fulfillment, and that's when our happiness rebounds. Yeah, I liked, uh, uh, I, I f- found it very, very intriguing when you mentioned uh, that life satisfaction in advanced countries like Germany, the UK, and the US isn't notably higher than it is in middle-income countries. Yeah, what the research has found is that if you take somebody and you lift them out of poverty, mm-hmm. so that they're not worrying every day about you know, where food is going to come from or whether they're going to have a roof over their head. If you can lift people out of poverty, you can vastly improve Absolutely. their happiness. Yeah. I mean, you go to, you know, poor countries in Africa and ask people, does money buy happiness? I mean, they would laugh at you if, 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 if you suggested that maybe it doesn't. Mm, right. right. Sure. Right. Money for them would buy enormous amounts of happiness. But once you reach the point where you know where you're going to sleep tonight and you know where your food is going to come from and you're not worrying about the necessities of life, from that point it takes huge amounts of money to further boost people's happiness. And in fact, in terms of day-to-day happiness, uh, one very important study found that happiness caps out at about $75,000 a year in annual income. Hmm. So once you get $75,000 a year, in terms of day-to-day happiness, you're probably about as happy as you're ever going to be. Now, that doesn't mean that further money couldn't make you happy, but it's going to make you happy in a different sense. I'm, earlier, I mentioned the distinction between day-to-day happiness and then separately the sense of satisfaction we get when we sit back and we look at our lives and we think about all the things that we've done and we've, when we have. That sense of satisfaction does tend to increase with money. So somebody who has a million dollars in the bank, when they sit back and reflect on their lives, it's more likely to say they're happy than somebody who has $10,000 in the bank. Um, but whether they truly are happy, happier day-to-day, that's, that's more doubtful. Right, right. You know, it's one of the key points that you really d- drive home, and I would personally concur with, and, you know, I... 
emphasize this to our clients, you know, all the all the time is, you know, finances or money ultimately can provide you with the freedom, which ultimately is more than anything else, being able to spend your time doing what you want to. And, and you, you really, really drive home the importance of spending money on experiences and making memories and how, again, the research has shown that those things, uh, which we think are going to make us happy unless somehow they are actually tied into the opportunity to have meaningful experiences often can lose their, their uh, uh, excitement. Okay. We're going to take our last break. When we come back, uh, Jonathan, I want you to share uh, with our listeners something that you express in your book having to do with something that you share and teach your college students. And it's something that I think most of us on face value are going to find a little bit counterintuitive. But again, that's only because of the so-called conventional wisdom. So we're going to take our last break. When we come back, we will pick back up with Jonathan Clements, and we're talking about his excellent book entitled How to Think About Money. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Tim Decker here with you. Final segment of Financial Freedom with our special guest, Mr. Jonathan Clements. We're talking about his newest book called How to Think About Money. And I would urge all of you, if you want to read a book that, in my opinion, is, first of all, a very easy and very interesting read, but I believe it's got a lot of substance and some very, very sound principles that not only can all of us use, but if you have young kids, if you are a young couple, I would strongly urge you to go out and get get yourself a copy of this excellent book. Before the break, um, I had mentioned that uh, I wanted Jonathan to sh- share with us some things um, relative to what he teaches his college students. And in one section of the book, uh, Jonathan, entitled Buying Freedom, you say, when I talk to college students, I don't tell them to follow their dreams. Now, that's shocking to many of us when we hear that. Would you explain to us what you mean and why? So th- this is definitely part of conventional wisdom. We, we say to our kids, you know, when you're in your 20s, you know, you should go out and you should f- pursue your passions. If you think you can be a rock star or a Broadway actor or actress or a poet, go for it. You should do these things before you become burdened by a mortgage and children and so on. You know, that's the time in your life when you should do this stuff. I think that's completely not complete nonsense. Who says that pursuing your passions in your 20s is more important than pursuing your passions in your 50s. In fact, I think the exact opposite is true. 
you think about kids in their 20s, they're actually super excited by the work world. They want to get out there and figure out the office rules, figure out how to get ahead at work, get those promotions, get those pay raises. They are super pumped to go to the office every day. Fast forward 30 years. So your age is similar to mine. (laughs) Going to the office on Monday morning isn't so exciting. That next promotion, no, I don't need it. Another pay raise, I've had plenty of those, and really it didn't make all that much difference to my life. Instead, by the time you get to your late 40s and your 50s and your 60s, you don't want to do stuff that's important to the boss. Instead, you want to do stuff that's important to you. This is the point in your career where you're thinking, I can't do my current job anymore. You know, I want to go off and do something that's more meaningful to me that I'm passionate about, that I think is important. But be able to do that, to go off and become a high school math teacher, to join a nonprofit organization, uh, potentially take a cut in salary in order to do work that will be more meaningful to you, to make that transition, you're going to need to be in great shape financially. So here's my advice to college students. Forget all this nonsense about pursuing your passions. Get out into the workforce. Get a high-paying job if you can. Save as much as you can. And very quickly buy yourself some financial freedom. Because when you get to your late 40s, you've got that midlife crisis going, or you're in your 50s, you're sick of your job, and you want to change that career that's less lucrative but potentially more fulfilling, you'll be able to do so. But if you spend your 20s trying to be a rock musician or a Broadway actor, you're going to get to your 50s, and you're not going to be in great shape financially, and you're going to have no choice but to get up in the morning and go back to a job you've come to hate. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, In fact, it was last week uh, on my show here, uh, I shared with our listeners, uh, there was an article that uh, was out, and unfortunately... What it showed is approximately 48% of people or young individuals the age 30 and younger have like nothing socked away for retirement. So I'm curious, as you share this with your students and you convey this and, and the reasons for it, what type of responses do you get and, you know... How do we get young people motivated, in your opinion, to see the benefit of socking away as much as you can as soon as possible and not living for the moment? Tim, it is super, super difficult. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not breaking any news here when I say <laughs> that financial literacy in the U.S. is abysmally low. I right. Mean, Most high school kids are not getting taught this stuff. Most college kids are not getting taught this stuff. And even the kids I teach, when I say to them, you know, when you get out into the workforce, same for retirement should be a a priority, they're like, what are you talking about? My priority is to go out and buy a really nice car. One One of the things I have my college students do is create what I call a lifetime financial plan. And they have to take their hypothetical income, divvy it up every year, and figure out you know, 
how they're going to put a hypothetical kid through college, buy a house, save for retirement, you know, pay for cars, and if they have student loans and credit card debt, how they're going to get that paid off. And you know, when I when these plans are turned in at the end of the semester, the kids you know, have no idea how they're going to pay for retirement. Yeah. They can barely focus on buying a house or the two things that they mention with great specificity is one, they don't want their own kids to have student loans, and two, they will tell me exactly the model and color of every car they're going <laughs> to buy. <laughs> yeah, it's... it's that, you know, they have the classic short-term focus that, you know, we, you know, we all tend to have, sure. but it's particularly acute at that point, right. and it's a terrible missed opportunity because saving and investing for retirement when you're in your 20s is hugely powerful because you have those decades and decades of compounding. Right. A dollar socked away at age 22 is so much more valuable than a dollar socked away at age 52. Sure. Well, we've got one minute left. Um, share with us any last thoughts that you would like us to get from your book, uh, anything that you think is uh, uh, very, very important. We live in a world where there are all kinds of excuses for not being financially responsible. I mean, we have all these hardwired instincts that derail us. You know, there's advertisements run, you know, every minute, every day trying to get us to spend money. You know, there are many people on Wall Street who are not as honest as you, Tim, and are trying to lead you astray. But just because there's a reason why you shouldn't succeed financially doesn't mean you shouldn't. I mean, the stakes are simply too high for you to muddle through life, spend too much, invest poorly, pay too much investment costs. So for goodness sake, take control of your financial life, because if you do, you'll be super, super happy down the road. Words of wisdom from Mr. Jonathan Clements. Jonathan, thank you so much, and uh, we'll be in touch, and say hi to your lovely bride, Lucinda. Thanks, Tim. It's my pleasure. Okay. Well, that hour went fast again. I would remind you, if you want to pick up an excellent, easy-to-read, but extremely substantive and practical book, make sure you get your copy of How to Think About Money. Take care. We'll be with you next week. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.